Spirit, I pray for your help right now for the preaching of your word. I pray for your direction, careful leadership over what's said, so that all that's said will serve to bring glory to Christ and to build up uh, this church. Lord Jesus, it's our aim whenever we gather to see you lifted up, to treasure your gospel again. And we want to do that now. So we pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, for your help, that we would bring you honor and glory, that we would see you in your word and treasure you as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're starting a new sermon series in the New Testament book of Philippians. Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi in the first century. From a human perspective, the Philippian church has very little cause for joy. Yet that's exactly what Paul calls them to in this letter. Not fleeting, flippant, or frantic happiness, but sustained, deep-seated joy. Stand firm with joy, regardless of how desperate your circumstances may seem. And the situation in Philippi is legitimately difficult. Philippi is a prominent Roman colony. It's rich from nearby farmland and falls along a strong trade route. The city's residents are strongly opposed to the gospel and to the Philippian church itself. And things inside the church are discouraging as well. A key leader, Epaphroditus, has almost died twice. And the church in Philippi is deeply divided. For example, there's a faction inside the Philippian church that's calling on the church to perfect themselves in their own flesh and, it, and thereby eroding confidence in Christ's finished work. And then there's Paul. Paul labored to establish this church in Philippi along with others 10 years earlier. And the gospel moved with power, but now it feels a bit stunted. Paul is in jail, most likely in Rome. The great gospel general has been captured and it would appear that the enemy has secured a staggering defeat. The prospects for the gospel to surge forward to the nations must feel unlikely and naive at this point. Now, Terrydale, you and I stand at a unique moment in history, a moment that's hard to appreciate while we're walking through it. But our world is divided by pandemic and politics, by wars and by sexual ethics. These divisions gave birth to massive amounts of anxiety that all of us are feeling. Anxiety that's presenting as blustering outrage in our culture and sometimes in the church. Tribalism is only an attempt to curb our anxiety by joining with others who think similarly. The church is under tremendous pressure in this environment. The forces dividing culture are threatening to fracture the church as well. So how do we remain faithful? How do we serve Christ as a vital witness to the gospel in this generation that he's called us to? Well, it's into this kind of moment that Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi from jail probably in Rome. The human perspective for the Philippian church might seem bleak. All the more reason to look from God's perspective. Paul tells the Philippian church to stand firm with joy, remembering the powerful advance 
of the gospel. And so this morning, I want us to step 10 years backwards in history from the time Paul wrote this letter to the first time that the gospel moves on to the European continent. The first time when Paul steps into the church in Philippi and begins to proclaim the gospel. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Acts chapter 16. We'll begin in verse 11 and take it all the way to the end. First, in Acts 16, 11 through 15, the gospel's power is revealed in Lydia's conversion. I want us to drop backwards just for a minute to Acts 15 to set the context. There's been a, a gathering of church leaders in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Council. And they've made decisions about clarifying the gospel. And now Paul and Barnabas want to go back to the churches they planted on their first missionary journey to encourage those churches. But there's a famous disagreement between those two brothers. And they pick separate co-workers and they set out on their journey. Paul picks Silas. We'll put up the map here. Paul picks Silas and they head out from Antioch. And they move to Derby, where they meet a young man named Timothy who joins their ranks. Probably Luke, who's writing Acts, is joining Paul as well. Well, Paul wants to go into the area of Asia to preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbids them to proclaim the gospel in Asia. So they try to go up to Bithynia. And again, the Holy Spirit forbids them to preach the gospel here. And they end up in this coastal city of Troas. It's in Troas that Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia who's calling on Paul to come to Macedonia and help them. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a Roman, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Paul and company arrive in Philippi, and it appears there's no Jewish synagogue. For a Jewish synagogue, there would have been needed to be 10 Jewish men in Philippi. The fact that they don't go to the synagogue, but instead go to this place of prayer, suggests maybe that there was no synagogue and that the Jewish population in Philippi is small. Well, they arrive at this place of prayer and they find a group of women and they begin to speak to these women. Now look at verse 14 as the story zooms in on one woman in particular. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now notice what Luke tells us about this woman, Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira, which is in Asia, where Paul was just forbidden by the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. But the Spirit has her here in Philippi, where she does hear the gospel. Lydia is a seller of purple cloth. Based on social norms at the time, we can assume, I think, safely that Lydia is probably a single woman. That she owns this business, and it's a prominent business. It's not easy to be a seller of purple goods. Purple dye was very hard to come by. So she's successful. She runs this business, and she's a worshiper of God. She respects God. She reveres God, but likely she hasn't heard about Christ. She has not heard about the gospel until now, when the Lord opened her heart to pay attention 
to what was said by Paul. Now, why does Lydia come to faith in Christ? Why does she choose to trust Christ and treasure the gospel? Was it because of Paul's persuasive preaching? Was it because of her own willpower and discipline? Was it because of her own ability to logic to the gospel and find it wise? No, Luke says that the Lord opened her heart so that Lydia could treasure what Paul had said, that she could pay attention to what Paul had said. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When you're talking to a non-Christian or when I'm talking to a non-Christian friend, we should view them as blindfolded. The God of this age, Paul tells us, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What should that do in the hearts of Christians? It should create humility. They're blinded by the God of this age. And it should create a spiritual hunger. It should provoke us to pray because the work that needs to be done is ultimately a spiritual work. We need their eyes to be opened to the claims of Christ. Here's 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul can share the gospel with boldness because Paul knows it doesn't ultimately rely upon him. He can share fearlessly about the hope he has in Christ because he knows it is the Spirit who will either open the eyes of that blind person or not. The Holy Spirit guarantees the success of the work of the church by opening up hearts to treasure the gospel, hearts that see the gospel and long to make it their own. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. John 3 says that the Holy Spirit is responsible for the new birth that we experience in Christ. So notice what the Spirit has done. He is orchestrating the journey to get them into Europe. He brings them to the river and he opens the heart of Lydia to believe the gospel. Church family, our job is to faithfully proclaim the gospel. God's responsibility is the result. We faithfully announce forgiveness of sins. We declare hope of eternal life in God. But we don't have the key to open that person's heart. The Spirit will do that. And so we must pray. The thought of sharing the gospel in this outraged context may produce fear in your heart. Matt Smethurst is a pastor in Richmond and an author, and he wrote this. It's not the presence of fear, but the absence of love that keeps us from sharing the gospel. It is not ultimately or finally the presence of fear that keeps us from sharing the gospel. It's the absence of love. If we love our neighbor, then we will forsake the relational comfort. We will accept the risk of ridicule and rejection because we love the person standing in front of us. And so we'll ask good questions of the person in front of us. Where do you find hope in such an anxious age? What do you put your anchor in? What is stabilizing your heart in such uncertain times? 
And then we lovingly question those answers. God is always at work calling our neighbors from death to life. Let's be faithful to proclaim him. Our culture might be outraged. Our culture is also spiritually hungry. Perhaps more than we've ever seen in our lifetime, our friends and our neighbors and our children are asking deep questions about life and faith. Brother or sister in Christ, step out in faith and trust that the Spirit will work in your faithful evangelism. Now in verse 15, we read this. After Lydia was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay and she prevailed upon us. Lydia is baptized. Lydia is wealthy because of her faithfulness in her business. And Lydia invests that wealth to prop up the evangelistic efforts in Philippi. She is supporting the work in Philippi so that the gospel can press forward. Now, Lydia receives the gospel with joy, but you and I know that's not always the case. Look at verses 16 through 24, where we see the world's opposition revealed in Philippi's rejection. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, again, this is Luke writing from his perspective, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now a demon has possessed this slave girl and the demon is revealing secrets to her about other people that she would not know without this demonic power. And this girl knows a secret about Paul. He's a servant of the Most High God, and he knows the way of salvation. Now, Paul is able to ignore her for several days, but finally he's overwhelmed. He's greatly annoyed. He turns around in a wonderful act of humanity, and he casts the demon out of this slave girl. Christian, don't ever be intimidated by darkness. Jesus shows his control over darkness. Last week we sang that, that the darkness trembles because of Christ. And we see the darkness trembling here. Immediately, that very hour, the demon departs. Now, Paul's action isn't missed by the girl's owner who have made a pretty penny pocketing off of her misfortune. Look at verse 19. When her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now the, the driving concern for these men is they've lost their ability to make money off of her misfortune. But what they say to the magistrates is these men are Jews and they're proclaiming things that are not right for us to practice or advocate. And they're persuasive. Look at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. 
We should not be surprised that Lydia hears the gospel and responds with faith. And we should not be surprised of the rejection of the gospel that's evidenced here. In John 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. As we walk through the letter to first, first Peter, we saw the reality that Jesus has made us sojourners. We're not of the world, but he's left us in the world. He hasn't taken us to be with him yet. And that fact makes the world oppose us just as it opposed Christ. But here's a caution. Sometimes Christians experience opposition from the world because of our sinful swaggering. If we are argumentative and if we are harsh and if we hold forth foolish arguments, then opposition from the world shouldn't surprise us. We are offensive, not the gospel. Here's another caution. Sometimes we're hypocritical. We arrogantly rail against our culture in the public square while we harbor the same sins in private. Here's an example. We rightly condemn the sexual revolution in our country because it harms people while we harbor a pornography addiction in our own home. Brothers, this shouldn't be. I'm not saying Christians should retreat from these conversations. Love won't allow us to retreat from the hard things our culture is processing. I am saying that we need to grow in proclaiming the truth lovingly, insightfully, and courageously. But please hear this too. We could do all the right things. We could make all the right arguments in all the righteous ways, and we could still be opposed. 1 Peter 3, 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, them meaning those who oppose you. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it, that is, make your defense with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16. Love of God and neighbor requires us to stand firm with joy in the face of the world's opposition. Love gives us no other option than to stand firm with joy. If Christians retreat from the arena, then we abandon our neighbors and forsake them to Satan's work in the world. We leave them without a witness of the hope of God, without knowing where forgiveness of sins can be found, without knowing the heart of their creator and what he longs for them to know. Christians out of love need to stay in the arena. But if Christians enter the arena employing sinful means and mirroring the world's tactics, then we will press our neighbors far away from the gospel into the arms of our enemy. 
Instead, stand firm with joy, remembering the gospel's power. Listen to what Peter said. Have no fear. No fear of the world's opposition. Think about that conversation with that non-Christian friend or child or colleague or neighbor or social media feed. What did Peter say? Honor Christ the Lord in your hearts. You serve one. You serve Christ Jesus alone. Honor him as Lord in your hearts. In the way you make your arguments and in the fact that you are willing to make those arguments. And be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's in you. We have the truth. Christian, make the truth in a compelling way. Argue coherently so that they know the truth of the gospel. We have it. We need to communicate it clearly. And make your defense with gentleness and respect. This isn't a call for milk toast defense. It is a call for Christ-like gentleness and respectfulness as we make our defense. And listen to what will happen. Peter says, they'll see you, they'll see those who are slandering and reviling you, and they'll see your gentle and respectful defense, and you will put them to shame. That's how we engage in our day. But listen, their beating isn't the end of this story. Their steadfast joy is on display, and they endure opposition with worship. Look at verses 25 to 34 in Acts 16. The gospel's power revealed in the jailer's conversion. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to, listening to them. They've been beaten with rods many times to the point where the jailer needs to nurse their wounds. They're hurting, they're bleeding, and they're worshiping, and they're praying, and they're singing, and the other prisoners are listening, and they know what's just happened. They know why they're in prison and why they're bloodied, and yet they're still worshiping. Look at verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. What would you have done? Isn't this an obvious answer to prayer? You've been worshiping, you've just suffered for the gospel. God comes in power and opens up the gates of the prison. We would be grabbing our bags and running for the door. But that's not what Paul does. Why? Because Paul seeks to advance the gospel. And Paul is not primarily gripped by personal comfort or a commitment to his own safety. No, he's asking the question, what's most helpful to the gospel? What is God calling me to do here? And so he stays. And his staying has an impact. Verse 28. Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He fell down before Paul and Silas. This is what happens. The, the jailer looks at what Paul has done. He, they proclaim Christ. They've suffered for Christ. They've been in prison. Now God has clearly acted on their behalf. 
and yet they are staying. God is using their staying for his own glory. Look at verse 30. Then the jailer brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household. Now what causes Paul to do this? Well, 10 years from this moment, Paul is imprisoned again, probably in Rome. And it's from Rome that he writes the letter to Philippi. And in chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, what's happened to him is he's been arrested again for the sake of Christ. Now, why has this served to advance the gospel? Philippians 1, 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard and all the rest, whoever that is, know that his imprisonment is for Christ. And that, Paul says, is an advance of the gospel. Furthermore, verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The church in Rome looks at Paul's circumstance and it's causing them to overflow with boldness. They're being more bold because of what Paul is enduring. Church, remember the gospel's powerful advance in the world. It strengthens us to stand firm with joy. We need to mount up with faith and pray that God will work miraculously in our generation. As we stand firm with joy, when we are opposed and mocked and rejected and passed over and punished for the sake of the gospel, we show the people around us that Christ is worth it, that this gospel has transformed me, that this gospel is my hope, that this gospel will outlive this world, that this gospel will outlive all the pain of rejection and ridicule and hardship. Therefore, I will stand firm with joy in this gospel. Brothers and sisters, God will use that resolute faith to showcase the gospel of a Savior who is willing to die in place of his enemies and rise to give those enemies life and adoption as sons and daughters. Don't assume God's absence when you are opposed for righteously contending for and defending the gospel. Now what happens next adds contour to the work in Philippi. Look at verses 35 to 40. The church's resolve is revealed in Paul's insistence. Acts 16, 35 through 40. Look at verse 35 first. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Now, the magistrates seem to be in somewhat of a panic, or at least they're changing their story. It's given Paul some leverage or authority. This earthquake and what's happened after the earthquake, somehow Paul has a little bit of leverage. 
And so he uses that leverage and he presses back on the government in Philippi. Look at verse 37. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that, the Roman, that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Paul has a category for insistence. There is a time for him to quietly endure suffering. There is a time for him to be beaten with rods without a proper trial. There is a time for him to sing while in prison. But there is also a time for Paul to press a point. There is a time for Paul to assert his rights rather than forego his rights. A time for him to hold the authorities over him accountable for their sinful actions. Paul says they've beaten us publicly without a proper trial, were uncondemned men, and were Roman citizens. Paul uses their own laws against them shrewdly. Now Paul's insistence placed him at much greater risk to suffer more at the hands of these government officials, officials who had already scourged him and thrown him in prison. So he takes a risk here. Paul could have left quietly. He could have minded his own business. He could have kept his head down so as not to jeopardize further work in Philippi. So then why does he press the point? Think with me. Why does Paul press the point? For what reason does he press back on these government officials? Why does he demand the officials walk down to the jail and escort him out? Because Paul's bold resolve pushes the Philippian government back on their heels. He knocks them off balance just a little bit. But why? Paul's actions are going to provide air cover so that the Philippian church can begin to thrive in the gospel. He sets them back. He makes them nervous. He lets them know they're in trouble with Rome for beating a Roman citizen without trial. And so now the government is treating the church with a little more care, providing space for the church to grow. In light of opposition and persecution, Paul provides us two examples from the same interaction. On the one hand, he forgoes his rights and he endures wrongful treatment and persecution. And then he insists on his rights and he pushes the government back on its heels. Now, what's governing Paul's heart? How does he know which to do when and how do we? Well, I think Paul's objective is to glorify God by advancing the gospel. That's his driving purpose. What action on my part will do more service to the gospel, will bring more glory to God? Here's Paul in Philippians 1.20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. A church family, we need wisdom to know when to suffer righteously and when to resist righteously. For the first time in our history, our generation is a religious minority in our country. And our perspective is not just considered naive and old-fashioned. It is considered irrational and hateful. We are trying to figure out how to be a faithful gospel witness for the first time in this kind of context. Some of us instinctively lean on truth. Knowing our faithful proclamation is the hope the world needs. So we hold on to truth and we proclaim truth. Others of us instinctively lean on love. Knowing that our faithful witness to the world is helped by our credibility. Helped by our ongoing relationship with the world. Cherry Dell, we need to hold our ground together. If we part ways, those of us who move towards truth and those of us who move towards love, if we move in separate directions, we will end up reshuffled in churches that look just like us. That happened already. The progressives and the fundamentalists divided. This is a time for the church to hold our ground together. Paul in Ephesians 4 does not call the church to love or truth. He calls the church in the face of waves and winds of various doctrines, false doctrines and false teachers, to speak the truth in love. Not just to speak truth and not just to be loving, but to speak God's truth in love. This is what our world needs from us in this moment in our generation. A church family empowered by the Holy Spirit, armed with the Bible, humbled by grace, strengthened by the hope and joy of the gospel. That's what this generation needs from us. Now, Paul summons the church to stand firm with joy, remembering the powerful advance of the gospel. The gospel will advance with power in all the world, whether it's rejected or received. The gospel will still advance. The one who took on human form and was honored all the way to the cross will be the one who stands before the nations where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And so the gospel will advance in war-torn Ukraine, in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan, in Hindu-dominated North India, and in the secularizing United States of America. The next few years are going to be filled with many unknowns, but the pressure on us will serve to awaken us to the task that is before us. Long gone are the days when a church family could live in the comfort of our culture. Those days are gone. We have an opportunity now to stand firm with joy if we have received eternal hope that will outlast every pain and treasure of this world, and if we've received forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life with God, and if we have the Spirit of God powerfully dwelling in our hearts, and if we know the embrace of adoption by God as His children, then we should overflow with joy.
Joy when our gospel is received and joy when our gospel is rejected. Because joy is the proof that the gospel is good news. And this is the message that we'll reflect on for the next three months as we walk through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. The letter that starts here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you. Spirit, we trust you. I was thinking about uh, the moment when you, Lord Jesus, were asleep in the boat and the waves were crashing and the disciples looked to you. We know that you're in our midst. We know you're with us till the very end of the age. We know that you've sent your spirit to strengthen us for the task and to guarantee the task. So direct and guide us, we pray. Keep us unified around your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.